Friends, welcome back to the Living Truth Podcast. This is Michael Carey, and this is part two of the two-part series with Dr. Jake Porter on the family of origin. If you missed the first of this two-part series, I recommend that you go back to this previous episode and listen to that first part and then come back to this one. So listen in on this incredible conversation with Dr. Jake Porter. You mentioned something, um, I don't remember the exact words now, but uh, I want to say the things that we started to do to survive Mm. in the world, right? Um, Yeah, you use a different word, uh, but uh, yeah, the thing, whatever it is that we do to to, uh, try to fit in, to try to uh, gain that value, to try to feel valuable, whatever it is. So we're, we're working from these scripts that really aren't true because as a child of God, we are valuable. These are lies that, that we take on because of these interactions. Right. So yeah, you're so, so the, uh, the things that we do, um, to survive, whatever those mechanisms are, whatever those, whatever that is, can you move into that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So so ideally, a parent or caregiver, let's just say caregiver, ideally, a caregiver adapts the environment to the child's needs. Okay. So, you know, when when our first child started getting mobile, we put up baby gates. We put up the little, you know, um, locks on the cabinets, right? Like we adapt the environment to the needs of the child. Now, you can go overboard with that. Moderation is key here, right? Um, But what happens is sometimes that doesn't happen, and the child begins to have to adapt to the environment. And and I'm not here. I'm not talking about like locks on. Although I could. I mean that that could be it. You know, on the cabinets, child proofing, and that sort of thing. But more emotionally, relationally, socially. And so, you know, we said value is is a place where it starts, but really the model that I use, which was developed by PM Melody, it's called post-induction uh, therapy for, for doing family of origin work, looks at five key characteristics of the nature of the child, okay? And there's overlap between these, and I'm sure you could come up with a sixth and a seventh and an eighth, but but by and large, we focus on these five aspects of the nature of a child. And so the idea is every single child is born with these five aspects of their nature. And then it's the job of the caregiver to, to treat the child accordingly. All right. And appropriately developmentally. And I'll walk through that in a second, but those five, those five uh, traits are valuable. Like we said, that's number one, valuable. Number two, vulnerable. Right. So think of it. Think of a newborn infant. Think of a, a little kid They They can't protect themselves. Right. They're vulnerable, imperfect. And we might even say perfectly imperfect, but no kid is perfect. And that's reality. You know, they're going to get words wrong as they're learning to speak. They're going to fall down as they're learning to walk. They're going to spill milk as they're learning to um, to to feed themselves and drink uh, from a glass. So imperfect. Number four is they are um, dependent, okay? And then number five is that they're spontaneous. Uh, they, they have a spontaneity, a natural spontaneity to them, right? Um, they poop, they pee, drool comes out of their mouths, they holler, they cry. And, and we need to be treated according to that nature. And 
what we found is that I can look, I can look back at my story and I can find, I can look at the ways I was or was not treated according to these five aspects of, of the nature of the child. And that begins to tell some of the story of these core issues that I might carry into my adulthood. Okay. And um, so, for example, let's just take value, right? You said something that is so right on, Michael. It's it's almost exactly what I say to my clients. The reality is we all have value because we're made in the image of God. Like every human being made in the image of God. And for that reason, we are we are all worthy of being treated with dignity and respect and we have worth. And it's not so 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 another phrase there would be it's inherent worth, right? My value doesn't come from how I look, what I know, what I can do, right? It's not performance-based. It's inherent, which means I can't add to it and I can't take it away. But if I'm not treated that way, if I'm treated as if I am worth less, okay, worth less uh, because I'm not as smart as my older sibling or because I'm not as athletic as my dad hoped I would have been, or I'm not, you know, fill in the blank with whatever, right? Or if I'm treated as worth more, one up, okay, because I perform, because I'm smart, because I'm good looking, because of whatever reason, I'm going to have self-esteem issues, right? I'm going to have a hard time relating to others as same as. I'm going to keep going one up, I'm going to keep finding myself feeling one down. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to um, like fight for my position value wise, you know, um, and it could be really subtle. So let's say a parent says to their kid, well, that's fine for, for our neighbors to do that. But hey, we, we don't do that. We're, we're porters or we're carries, right? Well, what's, what's the subtle message there? Better than mm-hmm. We're better than them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And if that gets ingrained, that that can become part of an identity that ends up being dysfunctional. Okay. So now the kid has to live up to this standard to maintain that sense of value or worth. Mm-hmm. Even as it relates to the family, like you said, we're porters or we're yeah. carries or whatever it is. So yeah. now I have this expectation to live up to. Right. Right. And 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 it can it can be kind of twisted too. Like let's say actually I was raised feeling one down, more worthless. Okay. But that was my place in the family. Well, that what what a kid learns there is my safety, because for, for children. They intuitively know they can't survive on their own, that they need to protect their place in the family, in the family system. And so if they've learned their place is one down, they will work hard to stay one down, which might mean working hard to keep the other elevated on a pedestal. Okay. And so I feel safe when you're on a pedestal. Okay. And so I will. I will downplay my own value. I will downplay my own sense of worth. I will downplay my own self-care. I will, right? And I will elevate you and raise you up because that guarantees my place with you. 
Well, I mean, I don't think it's difficult to see how that can translate into adult relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was just thinking of, yeah, in a, in a marriage relationship, of course, you know, that could, that could be, um, wow. Yeah. That's one piece I didn't think of working to keep you elevated and, uh, the, the, the caregiver, whoever it is. And so with the value vulnerable, imperfect dependent spontaneous and these these different things um we're we're talking about our caregivers our siblings again grandparents uh Mm -hmm. teachers all the all the people who who feed into these five different characteristics right we have the opportunity to um thrive or to to have some kind of rupture occur in any of these areas from any of these primary people in our life that's right. Right. Yeah. Take take vulnerable, that second one there, right? So, I mean, what's more vulnerable than a newborn infant? <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in fact, here's here's some some interesting trivia uh for, for listeners. No animal, I'm doing air quotes in case you're just listening, because I know we are more than animals, but mm-hmm. there is no animal on the planet that is more vulnerable and, and takes longer to become like self-sustaining than a human. I mean, hmm. think about like when a when a when a horse is born or a cow or you know a dog, how quickly those those puppies or foals or you know calves can get up and walk and feed themselves and and run away from a threat very quickly. And it takes humans years <laughs> and years and years and years to be able to make it on their own. We're incredibly vulnerable, and but but again, it's it's about being in the middle. So the way I protect, um, again, sorry, just because it's right in my face. My three week old, her vulnerability yeah. looks very different from my two and a half year old's vulnerability, right? So the the, the we've got to be as caregivers developmentally appropriate because I want to eventually teach my two year two and a half year old. To protect herself. This is where boundaries come from. Vulnerability, the, the issue of vulnerability is about boundaries. And there's a time where, and there are ways in which right now I am going to step in because my my daughter can't protect herself. And so it is right for me to protect her. But even at two and a half years old, there are ways in which I let her start to say, I want to give you a hug or I don't. Right. So if I ask her for a hug and she says, no, do I manipulate her emotionally? Do I act like I'm sad? Do I tell her she has to? Or do I say, that's okay, baby, you get to decide who you hug and who you don't. Mm -hmm. That's where boundaries come from. And so and so that Mm -hmm. core issue, if if I'm not treated according to my nature in terms of my vulnerability, I'm going to end up being overly walled in. Or walled off, rather, where nothing gets in. I'm overly boundaried, or I might develop where I'm totally boundaryless. I have no idea how to set a boundary because it was never modeled for me. It was never taught for me, right? My parents never never instructed me in that. Hmm. Yeah. The the different extremes: no boundaries or too many boundaries, and exactly just uh, like you were talking about before. With the flexibility versus rigidity, exactly. I think the boundaries fall into that category too, right? For yeah. sure. And, For uh, sure. 
too many, too many boundaries, you know, like, uh, right. you can never give me a hug, you know, I'm not a yeah. hugger. Right. <laughs> yeah. As a parent, I think that that's part of our job to provide physical, you know, the, the, the correct and healthy physical intimacy that kids need, you know, like a hug. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. That's right. That's right. And, and it really does matter like into adulthood. I have a client who I worked with for, for a long time who part of, part of his story was that in his adolescent years, he was no longer allowed to hug his mother. Uh, it was decided that that was inappropriate. And that had a tremendous wounding effect. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So, wow. yeah, these things definitely matter. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that actually is a good segue to talking about addictive behavior. And just like that scenario that you that you talked about, I mean, how how does the family of origin issues that we're uh, discussing here affect addictive behavior and and the like? Yeah, how does it affect us in, in these negative ways? Right. What is it that we're trying to accomplish with that? Right. Well, I, I don't want to. I, I want to be clear that there's no always that is that is that fits every situation. Okay. So um, what I'm about to say, I would, I'm, I want to say it's very often true for addicts, but not always true. So don't feel like it has to fit someone's story. But typically, those with addiction issues, one of the main wounds, I talked about those five areas, one of the main ones is around the fourth area that I mentioned, which is around dependency. Okay. Um, again, think about a newborn infant totally dependent, right? Dependent to be fed, protected, sheltered, clothed, cleaned, totally dependent. The, the caregiver's job is to meet those needs. But again, over time, developmentally, that's going to look different. And so as the, as the child gets older, under this dependency umbrella, there's the difference between wants and needs. And so the caregiver's job is to meet needs and meet wants appropriately, but also teach children how to meet their own needs and wants appropriately, right? And, and that includes emotionally. And so an emotional need for children, for infants, toddlers, young children, um, is to be mirrored emotionally, to, to be... Um, um, soothed, the, the infant nervous system and the, and the nervous system of a, of a young toddler is not able to regulate itself. So self-soothing is actually impossible until a certain point developmentally. And, and when a, when an infant, and I'm talking like two, three, four, five, six months old, if you put them in a room and you're letting them cry it out to learn to self-soothe, they are not self-soothing. What's actually happening in this, I know this could spark some shame. So just, you know, get your guard up, parents. If if you did this, there, there there's hope, okay, uh, to overcome this. But the, them stopping crying, that's not them self-soothing. That's them collapsing. That's their nervous system giving up, okay? 
we need an external nervous system to help our nervous systems cultivate the capacity to self-regulate. I can't regulate my own emotion unless someone else first regulates emotion for me. Okay. I can't calm myself until someone else first calms me and does it enough that it builds in that capacity within me. Okay. For not all, but for many addicts, they didn't get nurtured. They didn't get self-soothing. Now I'm a recovering addict. That was not my story. Okay, my parents did did mirror me and and self soothe and soothe me in in many ways. So there are other ways that this can happen. For me, there was there were incidents of abuse that came in through other other mechanisms. Okay, for through other people, but but if I don't have that ability to regulate my my emotion in a healthy way, I'm going to turn to external means to change the way I feel on the inside. And that's often where addiction comes from. So I can't change how I feel on the inside in a healthy way. So I'm going to use something on the outside to change how I feel on the inside. And that's often the setup for, for addiction. And then, and then I, I want to pair that with one other one. And that's around um, imperfection. Okay. So imperfection, if a child is raised in such a way that the message they get is that being imperfect means they're bad or there's something wrong with them, okay? Then one of the strategies that they develop to survive is dishonesty. Because if I believe I have to appear perfect, but the reality is I'm not because no one is, then of course I'm going to be dishonest. Okay, you pair those two things together. I can't admit a mistake. I can't ask for help. I have to appear perfect. And if I'm not perfect, that makes me bad. That makes me, that means there's something wrong with me. And you pair that with the inability to self-soothe in a healthy way. That is the makings of an addict right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because they're going to try to appear a certain way. And That's then right. use an outside source to self-soothe. That's right. So I'm so I'm turning, mm-hmm. I'm turning to it could be gambling, it could be porn, it could be emotional affairs, it could be drugs, it, right? Whatever it is, I'm turning to 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 change how I feel on the inside. And I can't admit that I'm doing that. I can't admit that I need help. So I, I have to be dishonest, air quotes there again, for people who aren't watching and they're listening. I have to be mm-hmm. dishonest because I don't believe it, that I'll be safe. I don't believe there will be a place for me in the relationship if I'm less than perfect. Mm, yeah, yeah. So that threatens the uh, primal instinct for attachment, the, the right. primal need for attachment too. Exactly. So, which is another topic yeah <laughs> as oh, well yeah. all the attachment stuff but that's yeah that that makes uh total sense and um thank you for describing that uh that's huge huge in um being dishonest and then of course when if if we aren't allowed to be imperfect um then and and we do things 
that we know we're not supposed to do, then the continued lying becomes a habit. And it's just, it kind of becomes a way of life. Um, Yeah, that's right. That's right. When I explain this to clients, the, the, the light bulbs that I can see going off are astounding, right? It's like, oh, that's why I lie. That's why, you know, and that's also why one of my favorite quotes is, uh, it's from, um, what's his name? Peck is his his last name. He wrote The Road Less Traveled. And I'm not saying I endorse everything in that book, but there's there's one Mm -hmm. quote from that book where he says, basically, mental health is a commitment to reality at all costs. And, mm. and think about like in 12-step recovery programs, rigorous honesty is a cornerstone. It's, you, it's the starting point. Until I am honest, I'm not dealing in reality. And until I'm in reality, I can't get any better. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so for many of us, we have to start with accepting I am imperfect. Mm. Mm-hmm. I am imperfect. Um, and I have to start. This is a spirituality issue as well, because if I don't accept my own imperfection and the imperfection of others, that all people are imperfect. There's only one person I know who was perfect. Okay. <laughs> and um, uh, he he is unique <laughs> in mm-hmm. the true meaning of the word, right? Um, Christ was perfect, but None of the rest of us are. And until I can accept that about myself, about you, there's no space for grace. Not for me, not for you, not in the space between us. And until there's space for grace, um, there, ha- there, there has to be either dishonesty or total outright rebellion and, and um, acting out. I don't know a better way of saying it. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe an example of that would be um, using emotions uh, as as a way to control the environment and different things, you know, yeah. like anger, using anger to manipulate and control and that. Right. Um, all out rebellion. You know, there's there's a lot of different way, places you could take that. But <clears throat> that was just one that I was thinking yes, of was, uh, using sure. emotions, maybe even even uh, sadness too, to mm-hmm. control the environment. Um yeah, I, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a, a guy that I know. He, um, I think he was abused and, and hurt so many times physically and emotionally that uh, the victim, um, if he, <clears throat> I, th- I think that he portrayed this image that he was always hurting because if I'm already hurt, nobody's going to hurt me again That's right. you know kind of a thing That's i mean right. it's just so 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 many places that uh and, and behavior and and where this all can lead to um that <laughs> back to what we said in the beginning we need professional help you know we really do beginning or middle yeah. or wherever we said it <laughs> we, sure yeah we have yeah. to have that and um yeah can you just give if you could really, really give a brief overview just to help people kind of you know guide them into what a family of origin intensive is about and what this yeah. is like that'd be yeah great. for sure so the first thing i always say about this is i know that there are lots of ways to do this work and the way that 
I do it or we do it at Daring Ventures is not the only way. But generally speaking, my recommendation for folks is to at least start this work with an intensive. Can you do it in one-on-one individual therapy on a weekly or bi-weekly or whatever frequency basis? Sure, you can. But I think it's going to be much more powerful if you start with an intensive. And here's why. When we do these intensives, we get six to eight men or six to eight women. We always do uh, gender specific um, for family of origin intensives. And there is so much power in both sharing your story and being a witness to others' stories as you as you try to begin to grasp this work. Because how I and you you know this happens, Michael. You've you've had this experience, I'm certain, with men you've worked with. They have empathy for other people's stories, but not their own. Oh, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? They they minimize what they've been through. Oh, I didn't have it that bad. Oh, it wasn't that big a deal. Or they laugh, they laugh about something that really was awful, right? Well, you tell that story in a group with you know six or eight other men and you see their faces. It's a wake-up call. Or you hear their stories and you feel the empathy and the compassion for them. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh wow. That actually is a lot like this that happened to me. And so doing this work in a group to begin with is it's like a it's it's like getting a head start because as others are work doing their work, you are doing your work as well. And so the way we do it, again, different different people can set up different ways. We typically do a three-day experience. Um, that's pretty fast, okay. Um, but it's in, it's a very intense three days with a, with a very limited number of guys. And the first day is all education. So this stuff that I've been sharing with you, Michael, we, we spend a full day walking through these concepts, weaving in exercises to help the men or the women to begin to see their own story through this lens, through these, these concepts, right? Then the second and third day, we do experiential work, chair work, it's inner child work, where we actually tap more into the right brain. I could get into all the neurobiology of it, but that's a whole different conversation. And we we actually purposefully awaken these old traumatic memory networks where these old maladaptive responses are stored to to open them up to be changed and healed and 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 have awareness of them and have felt experience of 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 responding differently. I don't know how else to say it, but but it's a it's a three day. I call it a descent because each day we go deeper and deeper and deeper. And you absolutely, I I guarantee you will not do all of your family of origin work in three days, but it's enough to get you started and to learn the concepts and then you can continue doing it you know whether it's in a group that meets every week or every other week or in individual therapy or i mean i'll be real when i got into recovery in 2008 or 9 i can't remember somewhere in there um i as a client i as the as a client did seven 
family of origin intensives. So I just kept going back, kept going back, kept going back because there was more and more and more and more and more. And uh, that worked for me. Yeah. I, uh, I, I love the hunger in, you know, hunger for growth, you know, I, uh, I, I love that. Um, I felt the same way when I got into recovery as well. Yeah. Uh, just, um, I want to just eat it up and keep going back. Uh, I think, I think that's extremely helpful. So, for sure. yes. So, uh, again, daringventures.com. And if people are specifically interested in our family of origin intensives, you could go to daringventures.com slash freedom to move forward. Just all the words freedom to move forward. And uh, that's what we call our family of origin intensives. And um, we don't do many of these. We really don't. I I mean, I love the work, but um, so it's pretty limited availability, but there are a lot of therapists who do this work and do it really well and so i would also just invite listeners if if we're not a good fit for you or our dates don't work reach out to me or my team and we'll we'll try to connect you with someone else who does it because we just want people to get helped uh whether that's through us or or whoever uh, does mm-hmm. the work well yeah oh that's great awesome mm-hmm. Thank you so much for being on the show today. This is really, really good information. I know that uh, everyone really needs to hear this. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Michael. I really appreciate it. It's always, always a fun conversation with you.